Welcome to the first episode of Rank and Review. My name is Larry Parsons. I will be your host and random Canadian. The idea behind the show is that I force-feed friends of mine six genre movies and then make them rank them from their least favorite to their favorite. If they match up with mine, they get a prize. If they don't, well, they just get my love. Um, why am I doing this is probably the better question, especially since the first episode, and I don't have a great answer for you guys. I have been collecting movies for 20 years, specifically horror movies, but other movies as well, and in this day and age of Netflix and the dying physical medium, I really wanted to justify that collection and make use out of it. So if I'm not watching the movies, I'm going to make my friends watch the movies, we're going to talk about these movies, and we're going to have a lot of fun with it. The first episode is on the subject of historic horror. I got my very good friend Jeremy Cook in. He's going to be talking about history, talking about the films themselves, and I couldn't have picked a better guest for the first show. I hope he comes back again, and a uh, little bird told me that he very likely will. A few things that I should clean up, because being the first episode and being a novice of the whole podcast thing, mistakes were made. Um... William Mapother is actually Tom Cruise's cousin, not stepbrother or whatever ridiculous thing I said. The Sixth Sense was nominated for six Academy Awards and won none. The only other horror movies that were nominated for Oscars would be Jaws and Exorcist, and they both lost as well. Um, and there's some discussion of the Wilhelm scream. And uh, for those not in the loop, here you go. Yes, there is much discussion of the Wilhelm scream between Jeremy and I, so just in case uh, you weren't in the loop, now everyone can be on the same page. I also want to tell everyone that there are going to be some spoilers. We try not to ruin the entire arc of the story or the whole movie, but specific character deaths will be discussed and specific events in the films will be discussed. So if you don't want them spoiled, don't listen until after you've seen the movies. But please, by all means, do listen and tell your friends. I hope you guys enjoy this first show, and thank you so much for listening. title now is it uh until it changes all right well here i am what would you like me to do well i've known jeremy for what 20 ish years uh we met in art class in 1993 or 1992 we'll say 20 years yes <laughs> uh jeremy and i are both great aficionados of horror 
specifically film, but uh, also we liked we like our book reading as well. Um, and I came up with this brilliant idea to have a podcast where I force feed my friends six genre films and then make them rank them in, from their least favorite to their favorite. And Jeremy, that I'm not supposed to say your name, J. Adrian Cook. That's my pen name, but you can call me Jeremy because, <laughs> can... uh, yeah, you're a good friend of mine. Okay. All right, J. Adrian Cook. I'm sorry. Uh, we can clean this up later. It's okay. <laughs> J. Adrian Cook, I assigned you six historical horror movies, which would be movies set in historical times, which is interesting, too. I was actually thinking about this when I was making the list, like a movie like uh, The Shining or something like that, which was contemporary when it was made. It's sort of a historical picture now. It's very 1970s or 1980, I guess, whenever it was. But what I'm looking at here is sort of costume, you know, where every single shot of the film would have a lot of production value because of the necessity of when it was set. Um, Yes, uh, the earliest movie you put me on here was Below, which was set in, uh, 44, was it? Let's say 44. Uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, uh, do you want to just go through the movies, all of them first, just real quickly, so everyone knows what we're talking about? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, the 2002 submarine thriller Below, uh, which was directed by David Twahy, T-W-O-H-Y, how would you say that? Tui, maybe? Tui? I don't know. He is known for doing the Vin Diesel movies of the Riddick movies and Pitch Black, which I am not a fan of. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, so I thought it was an interesting movie. There's a 2004 uh, sort of Western, uh, Dead Birds, very influenced by Lovecraft, directed by Alex Turner. And he went on to do a movie called Red Sands, which the less said the better. <laughs> um, and then we have The Burrowers. Uh, well, Jeremy, please, tell me about The Burrowers. Well, it's another uh, horror western. Uh, you want the one sheet? Uh, no, that's all right. <laughs> I can remember it. Yeah, another horror western uh, about a uh, young Irishman whose love is kidnapped, supposedly by Injuns, and we find out pretty quickly that that is, in fact, not who we are dealing with. It's rather supernatural monsters. Indeed. Uh, there's a 2010 film called Black Death, directed by uh, one of my preferred genre directors, Christopher Smith. He's, uh, he's a limey, or British, if you want to be politically correct. <laughs> um, but uh, he did, I don't. <laughs> he did uh, this movie Creep, about uh, the Run, Lola Run, being chased by a monster in this. Have you seen it? No. It's good stuff. Um, and he's done a movie called Triangle, which is, I think, loosely based on the Bermuda Triangle, um, and uh, sort of a horror comedy called Severance. This is definitely the most ambitious. Uh, it's a plague, you know, uh, knights assigned by gods to uh, do God's work in dark times, and uh, it's pretty bleak, I think you'll agree. I will agree with that. <laughs> um there's a 2010 movie called Exit Humanity from Canada, which is a real bizarre one. Um, it's got it's narrated by Brian Cox, who we both love. Of course. It's got zombies in it, which we both love. I love zombies. Uh, it's got animation in it, which we both enjoy. Depends on the kind of animation. <laughs> Depends on the kind of animation. It's a weird one. And the, the sixth and final movie is The Raven, the film about Edgar Allan Poe's last days starring John Cusack and from the director of V for Vendetta. 
Yes. So that's the, that's the crop of movies that we're going to talk about today. That's what Jeremy has been asked to rank from his least favorite to his favorite. Yes. Um, it was an, a pretty easy and enjoyable little project. Uh, there's not a lot bad that I can say just about the movies that I saw. Um, and the, the really good thing about them is that, for the most part, they were fairly true to their uh, historical accuracy. Uh, as it just so happens, I've done some studying on each of the eras involved in it beforehand, and they stayed true to the spirit of the times for each of them. Regardless Let it never be said that J. Adrian Cook does not do his homework. No. Uh, homework was done before I actually watched the movies, though, Larry. <laughs> Uh, before we get right into the meat of this and uh, talk about the historical movies, I want to talk about, especially because it's the first time we're doing this, like the horror genre as a rule and the lack of respect I feel it gets for most people and certainly critics. And uh, we're totally armchair critics. We haven't gone to school or studied cinema. We just appreciate it. We're, we're you know, film auteurs the way Quentin Tarantino is because he spent his youth watching movies, not because he's educated in it. But there are people who will look at horror as maybe a slight tier above pornography. <clears throat> you know what I mean? <laughs> well, I heard it said. I've heard it said that uh, uh, I can't even remember the source of this quote, but someone slagged the horror genre, saying that it's no better than pornography because pornography elicits a physical response in the viewer, and so does horror. Uh, being creeped out and frightened. Uh, and uh, that was then refuted by uh, the person who I was reading about who said, okay, so uh, if you've never cried at a movie, then what kind of a viewer does that make you? Exactly. If you're getting an emotional response from a movie, even if it's anger, really, <laughs> it, uh, that's genuine. You're getting an, uh, an authentic emotional response and that means the movie's working in some way maybe not in the way it means to but if you're reacting to it on an emotional level and it's anything short of just being frustrated that you're being forced to watch the movie then i think to some matter it's working yes and uh you know silence of the lambs is probably the only movie that could come close to be called a horror movie that has won any oscars that's if you respect the oscars you know well was uh there was that uh I see Dead People movie. Uh, Sixth Sense? Sixth Sense. Uh, did, 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 did that win anything? I don't know. I think it definitely got nominated, though. Yeah. We'll have to do our Shia, research yeah, on Yeah, we, we could do more research on that. <laughs> <laughs> if Shyamalan was nominated, I'm sure they regret it in retrospect. I think you did a good job selecting your six. Uh, I might take issue with the fact that The Raven isn't exactly a... a a horror movie per se. It's more of a on the edge of your seat thriller set in the past. But as uh, as it stands here, the six you've chosen are good examples of the horror genre set in interesting time periods. Yeah. Well, and with the whole genre thing, as I say, I, I'm pretty fast and loose with that. I mean, it's based on Edgar Allan Poe. People get sliced in half with giant blades. Uh, there's a lot of grim fates to be found in it. It's close enough to horror that I think, for for my money, it counts. Uh, but you don't see movies like that very often. Uh, I guess in this direct, well, we don't have video anymore, <laughs> direct-to-cable markets and stuff like that. They want to spend as little money as they can on a movie. Uh, Jeremy and I, or J. Adrian Cook and I, are great fans of H.P. Lovecraft and great fans of uh, Guillermo del Toro, who's been trying to make In the Mountains of Madness for 10 years. Yes. Including working with James Cameron and getting 
Tom Cruise to agree to star in it. And with all of those in place, they still can't get that movie made. So <laughs> It's very difficult to get a historical horror movie going. You have to spend money on sets, and you have to spend money on uh, accent coaches, if that's need be. I've seen some pretty bad historical horror movies where they didn't actually put any effort into that, and it just sounds awful. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, and it's not easy. Like, every single frame is money, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you can't have a guy sitting in a chair that looks like it's been, you know, made any time, you know, beyond whatever setting you're, you're putting your film in. You can't, you can't be wearing a watch. can't have a tattoo. You have to look out for everything. Production and design is ridiculous. And I think that's why you don't see very many of them and uh, why a lot of them that try with low budgets are less successful because of just the sheer scale and ambition. And that's probably exactly what the producers, prospective producers of In the Mountains of Madness were saying to Guillermo del Toro is why does this have to be set in the 1930s? Why can't we just bump it forward and not spend extra money on this? Does it have to be all men? Exactly. Does it have to be so depressing? Yes, kind of. It has to be all of those things if you're going to do that story, right? It's Lovecraft, and it's got to be set in a particular time and place. If it's removed from that, it loses some of its magic. Yeah, or it just might not work at all, frankly. Yes. Hmm. Like, yeah, it's interesting. They're talking about updating uh, It, you know, the Stephen King book or It. Yes. They were, they're talking about doing a new take on that where instead of it happening in the 50s and the 80s, it's happening in the 80s and in contemporary times. And what would the point of that be? Well, it would be easier from a production standpoint, I guess, uh, to find a small town that looks 80s than that looks authentically 50s anymore. Um, and it's probably better for their more modern audience, whereas, you know, they don't know... The people they're trying to get in the theater don't know what it was like to be a kid in the 50s, but a lot of them know what it was like to be a kid in the 80s. Well, here's why that's dumb. <laughs> the thing is, if being... Watching a horror movie is all about identifying with the main characters. For me, it doesn't matter if someone is being scared in the 50s or being scared right now. You're supposed to be able to identify with them. And if you can't do that, once again, what kind of a viewer are you? Yeah. I guess it's how important is the time frame uh, to your story. If it's important, it, it's set, you know, if you're cowboys and engines or whatever. Nobody has a cell phone. <laughs> Well, that's important even in the 80s, too. Yeah, exactly. The things change. It's really hard to get a bunch of teenagers to some remote cabin in the woods where they don't have instant access to the authorities anymore. It's just not realistic. Mm, well, was there not a movie about that just recently? Cabin in the Woods? Never heard of it. Never heard of it. All right. Well, you're obviously well-versed in all of this. So uh, are you ready to try uh, some rank and review? Yes, let's do it. They killed. They took Marianne, took the whole family. What kind of weapon makes a wound like that? We'll find him. We don't quit. We don't sleep. It's like you found yourself a hole in the ground there, Will. What do you think, cowboy? I don't know. Another right there. This is something we ain't seen before. Let's start with uh, The Burrowers. The Burrowers is the first of the movies that I watched. The 
thing I would like to mention to any prospective viewers of this show is that in this particular film, the darks are very, very, very dark. I would recommend not watching it during the daytime, or if you do, doing it in a very dark room, because during the nighttime scenes in this film, you will miss things, and it will be confusing to you. Yeah. Uh, and just a little tertiary thing for the time being, are we going to just avoid spoilers? If we got to go into spoilers, we'll give them a heads up or? Yeah, let's avoid spoilers. We'll avoid we'll spoilers them, for yeah. the time being. Mm-hmm. Okay. The magical thing about podcasts is you can choose when you listen to them. <laughs> so. Indeed. And you <laughs> so if you're worried about being spoiled, I would, uh, I would encourage you to watch these movies first. But, uh, if you like talking horror, here we are. Sorry, Jeremy. Burrowers. You, Burrowers. you just watched it first and you thought this of it. Well, uh, this is not just one of my favorite horror movies. I believe it may be one of my favorite movies ever. Wow. Yes. High praise indeed. I love the setting. I love the monsters. Uh, The screenplay is pretty much perfect dialogue-wise as far as I'm concerned. uh, Without spoiling anything, the ending is a huge bummer, which I know has turned off one or two critics. But get over it. It's the horror genre, and you should expect bad things to happen. It's so frustrating when people get all all mad about sour endings to horror movies. You look at like some of the classic classic horror movies, and none of them typically have real smiley happy endings. You know, <laughs> uh, the point of the horror genre is one of them anyway, is to leave your audience unsettled as they're leaving the theater, which is typically why you have that. So, oh, so well-known ending where we see the monster come back for one final scare and he flies at the screen going, Oh, no. Like Maybe he'll get us on the way to the car. Exactly. Yeah. No, <laughs> I understand it. I just don't understand it as a complaint. Yes. But, uh, no, I agree. It is a very grim uh, movie. And I think that, that that's something that is true of almost all of these movies. <laughs> They're Indeed. pretty dark in tone and not all sunshine, good, triumphing over evil at the end. Well, what makes the burrowers different too as well is that the director has put a lot of love into the making this film as it seems like an oscar film at points like i can't find the word i'm using to describe it but the very first scene we have is our young irish hero practicing his Wedding proposal. And that's, uh, Mapother? What's his name? Jay Mapother? Why don't you look that up? First? <laughs> yes. William Mapother. Yeah. Uh, interesting to note, he is actually related, I think, like second brother or stepbrother to Tom Cruise. Really? And, uh, if you're a fan of Lost, he was a fairly important villain character in the, in the TV show Lost. You don't get to see him have needy roles like this that often. And I thought actually he was really good. Anyway, there's a lot of love put into the scenery and the landscape. Uh, I see a lot of Oscar-winning movies that have billowing grain fields in them. Those are to be seen uh, in this movie as well. Uh, the cinematography, like I say, just gorgeous. It's like a supernatural version of The Searchers. You know The Searchers? I've not seen that. Is it a famous uh, John Wayne Western where his uh, family gets taken by... Basically, the premise is the same, except for there's no monsters involved. Fair enough. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, I think I agree. I mean, like, they did took pains, the, the production took pains to please fans of the Western. The movie takes its time. It really accomplishes, you know, putting you in place. And you believe that these people are, you know, cowboys and that they live a rough life. So. Yes. 
And that's one of the other great things about this show is how well they actually manage the politics of the time. Oh, yes. That's going on between uh, various people. We have several different cultures and factions operating with each other in this movie. There's the settlers. There's the American army. There's the Sioux, the Crow, and the Uta. And none of them communicate with each other very well. And miscommunication causes a lot of problems. <laughs> it's one of the themes of this movie, in yeah. fact. Uh, but one of the great things about the movie is that the subtitles tell us exactly what is being said. Even if it's being said completely incorrectly by a bad speaker of the language, it'll tell us exactly what they're saying. So we'll understand what one of the Sioux is saying, for instance, about the horrible monsters, while the settlers are trying to figure out who this burrower tribe is. Yeah. The Sioux is trying to tell them, no, it's supernatural monsters, but <laughs> they're just not getting at the settlers. Yes, but, communication is important. <laughs> mm -hmm. And there's the, the, the scene where, uh, about midway through, where our settler friends are surrounded by Indians and one of the Indians raises his rifle up in the air to... Holding his, by the center of the rifle, saying yes, hello. As a greeting, and <laughs> the main character... Draws his gun. <laughs> draws his gun and fires it. <laughs> because he's creeped out and scared. Not an appropriate response to hello. <laughs> and, and then the subtitles come into play again, where they meet some Uta Indians later on, who uh start referring to one of the characters as a little fish little fish and uh, imperfect french through the subtitles and the main character who can speak french has no idea what they're talking about and it's only until the indians start dragging away one of the settlers that he realizes that they're talking about bait that's a wonderful little moment i really enjoyed it what else can you tell me about this? What um, did you think of it? What did I think of it? Well, I'm a big fan. I mean, I, I, I guess I never really thought to frame it as one of my favorite movies ever. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, I think it's exceptionally well done. And like I said, I think it takes pains to please fans of westerns and fans of horror movies. Mm -hmm. I watched a lot of westerns with my old man. <laughs> and uh, the first act or hour of it is largely, you know, some event that causes the action and then... A journey and a bunch of interesting characters and scenery as things are sort of they it takes its time and a lot of horror fans do not like a horror movie that takes its time you want teeth and snot in the first five minutes you're not going to get that with this but you're going to get a really unnerving well-told horror story and yes. that's what i was looking for when i picked up the burrowers so uh i'm a big fan i'm a big fan mm -hmm. this movie has been criticized for its slow pace I myself did not feel that because I was just on the edge of my seat with tension throughout the whole movie yeah. and trying to figure out, honestly, that it presents a very good mystery about what exactly is happening. Obviously, the title tells you a lot about what's going on with the uh, creatures, but it doesn't tell you everything. And let me tell you, the, the monsters in this and their method of dispatching people are just absolutely horrifying <laughs> disturbing uh, tapping into those feelings of uh, terror one feels in sleep paralysis where you're uh, 
conscious and bad things are you feel like bad things are being done to you but you can't move weird suffocating thing too mm-hmm. which is echoes of edgar Allan poe which we will be talking about later but uh indeed no uh, the creature design on it they say like most of the pre-production was dedicated to them and uh miles bows you don't see a lot of the creatures but you certainly see enough to be <laughs> mm-hmm. that's one of the great things about the show is that they are usually out of focus yeah and the parts that are in focus, the puppetry and animatronic bits look great. Yeah. The uh, CGI effects definitely, probably, okay, that definitely, probably, that's not much. Anyway, <laughs> they don't look that good. Uh, there's some points where computer blood spurts out of people, and you can tell it's computer blood. Yeah. There are a few scenes where the monsters are moving. See, I think that's much more of a problem in Dead Birds than it is in, 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 in Burrowers as far as the compu blood. We'll get to that. <laughs> we'll get there. We'll jump ahead. <laughs> the other thing that I did want to say about the Burrowers, though, yeah. is Clancy Brown. Uh, Clancy Brown, he was uh, sort of the guide who was taking them on their journey. He was one of the prison guards in Shawshank Redemption and is also known famously as the drill sergeant in Starship Troopers. Yes, I think I know what you're going to say here. So I'm just I think gonna... he's the tits. I think he's yeah. awesome in this movie. I really do think he's really great in it. Um, and, uh, yeah. It's I, nice to see him not playing uh, an, a, asshole? an asshole as <laughs> Indeed. well. Uh, we get the feeling at the start of this movie that particularly with him and... Uh, the other character, Parcher, they're old Indian fighters, and they're saying stuff like, oh, I hang three Indians from this tree. And we get this idea, looking back from the 21st century, oh, these guys are horrible assholes. Absolutely. But uh, We get to like them. <laughs> we get to like them once we actually meet the U.S. Army with their... Uh, Doug Hutchinson, another... Uh, <laughs> once we another see how bizarre they, performance. <laughs> once we see how they treat the Indians with their uh, Indian scrotum tobacco pouches. <laughs> wow. We start to realize that our main characters are actually fairly liberal in their treatment of <laughs> Indians. And, you know, they actually take the time to learn their language and stuff like that instead of <laughs> hitting them with things on site. Anyway, you're about to talk about Clancy Brown's death. I think I, I think I would like to talk briefly about that. Well, here's a little spoiler then. Okay. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> well, he is the Gandalf character in a lot of ways, right? We yes. feel safe when he's around. So in that respect, he he needed to go. But what I thought was amazing was how spectacularly awful his exit was. This is the one character who genuinely seems to respect and uh, have the ability to communicate with the native people in the region. And uh, he believes that a family of innocent settlers has been murdered by Indians, and he's out to find the guilty party. But he's not out to find any Indian. And the means with which there is a miscommunication, when we talked about it earlier, a native <laughs> man raises his gun with his hand in the center of the, the weapon to say hello, and a gunfight ensues, and Clancy Brown takes around in the neck, and we were talking about this earlier when it happened. It was like, oh, man, is he is he down? He's still alive. He's still alive. He's still alive. But <laughs> <laughs> I honestly think, it's, is it a tomahawk or is it just is it a hammer? What does he hit him with? It's I didn't get a good look at that weapon, but it was definitely a sharp-bladed weapon. It just takes <laughs> off the top half of his face. It's unreal. <laughs> it is Unreal. And, I mean, I've early nomination for best death of all six of these movies for me because I, I, I won't say that I didn't expect Clancy Brown to get killed, but I didn't expect that to play out in that way. And it did shock me. And I've watched a lot of these movies, and when I'm genuinely shocked by something, 
uh, I say that's a good thing. Well, that part of it, the reason it was so great is because it was so unexpected. Uh, you typically, I can only think of one other movie in which this has happened. You typically do not get somebody killed while they're in the middle of a big speech about <laughs> how this is what we're going to do. We're going to go out there, and we're going to find those that... (laughs) (laughs) Death, death, death. Yeah. That happened the first time I remember it in Deep Blue Sea. (laughs) Famously with Samuel L. Jackson. Yes, and that was just funny as all hell and really exciting and... uh, I, I love that that death as well. It's almost the becoming the new cliche, though. The unexpected death in horror movies is this new thing that they they establish a hero in the first act and then kill them. Uh, back in the day, uh, that was less common. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that we're starting to see more of it as you know as time goes on. But yeah, Clancy Brown, great performance and great exit from the Burrowers. Is there anything else you want to say about the Burrowers before we move on? Yes. Um, this special note I need to make about the sound here, because at one point, we, uh, during the gunfight, uh, an in- Indian is shot through by a, a bullet, and he makes the Wilhelm scream. Mm-hmm. If you have the uh, chance to go online and actually find a sample of that and play it for your audience, I recommend you do that now. Easily done. Think, Easily yes. done. Um, this is in so many movies. Uh and the uh, other thing, too, is the sounds that the monsters make in this movie. I've heard their noises before. Mm-hmm. I heard them when I was playing the expansion to Diablo 2. Huh. There are monsters that make these little <laughs> sounds. <laughs> and direct sample directly from that. I don't know if Diablo 2 took it, made it originally, or whether or not they got it from some other previous movie. But... The thing about how this relates to the burrowers is that the sound in the burrowers is chiefly where the movie falls short of my expectations. Uh, if you reuse sounds, there are people like me who can hear it yeah. and recognize it. And when that happens, you're taken, I, I am taken completely out of the movie. And I remember that I'm sitting in my home or in a theater. And I'm not as involved in the movie as I was. It dampens my enjoyment of it. The Wilhelm scream is, uh, yeah, I agree. Like, even in movies that I love, like, there's one in Lord of the Rings, and it pisses me off. There's one in The Two Towers, and there's two in Return of the King. Two Wilhelm screams in that. Uh, And, uh, I I mean, they're done knowingly. It's like a tip of the hat to George Lucas or to just movies in general that you use it. And I think if you're in a comedy or if you're in a movie that's... uh, you know, not asking you to take it seriously, where it's okay, where they're winking at you, then fine, go nuts. But if you're doing a serious horror movie and you want us to be with you all the way, yeah, uh, don't remind us of Star Wars at uh, the moment of the character's death. I think that's a mistake. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And honestly, whenever I hear the Wilhelm scream, my reaction is not, oh, ho, ho, there's a happy little Easter egg that I've just recognized. My response is, go fuck yourself. <laughs> okay? Take some time to make your own sounds and make them original to your movie, it's just as important as everything else. I think I'd have more respect for the scream if it was a better scream, too. <laughs> if that's the last noise that escapes me, and that's what comes out of me, I'm, like, I'm going to feel like I deserve my fate. Well, I, I did some research on it, and I could be wrong about this, but I think the first time it was used was in some jungle adventure movie where a character named Wilhelm gets eaten by an alligator. Oh, so it, was, it didn't even start with Star Wars. Hey? No. See, Larry pleads ignorance yet again. Yep. 
All right. Uh, I think we have we have we settled the burrowers. Well, uh, yeah, this was not just good entry into this project, but maybe one of my all-time favorite movies of all time, wow. and definitely one of my favorite horror movies. Wow, strong, strong words from J. Adrian Cook. Dear God, get the inspector. This crime is familiar to me. Edgar Allan Poe. What may I attribute the honor of your call? The night before last, a young girl and her mother were found murdered. The daughter's body was lodged in a chimney. The mother's head severed with a straight razor. You're referring to one of my stories, a work of fiction. I'm afraid I am not. I watched The Raven. Ah, oh, yes. Okay, uh, that would be starring John Cusack, directed by Louis McTeague, who did V for Vendetta. Did you see V for Vendetta? I sure did. It was a good-looking movie. It was a well-made movie, but I wasn't overly toppled by I, it. I kind of enjoyed it. I liked the ending, seeing all the explosions. <laughs> a lot of explosions. I don't know. It had that Spider-Man uh, Power Rangers thing, with everybody wearing masks and giving these vast monologues. It kind of got to me. But we're not talking about V for Vendetta. We're Indeed. talking about The Raven. Um, what were your impressions? <laughs> well, uh, my first impression is that I believe that I would have had a lot more enjoyment of this movie was I more familiar with the works of Edgar Allan Poe. Okay. Uh, we've mentioned that we're, we are both uh, fans of the horror genre, both in print and on the screen, but as it happens with Edgar Allan Poe, I'm not such a huge fan. No? Even though he's one of the pioneers of the genre. I find it very difficult to read his work because it seems like he's trying too hard to show himself off as a writer, as a writer. So as a result, I was not at all familiar with what, with a lot of the clues that were being presented during the course of this film. And I have the feeling that, for instance, if I had known before we started watching the movie the manner of his death, some of the details of his short story, who the characters were he was interacting with. If I had known all that, I would have liked it. It would more. be a richer experience. Yes. I am, I, I, I'm, I mean, I like Edgar Allan Poe. I don't frog at the mouth over him, but I'm familiar with his work. Uh, and he does have a very flowery, uh, lyrical, poetical language to him, which is why I like it when he kind of sideswipes you with the horror. Uh, but yeah, I get totally what you're saying. Um, and to be historically accurate about the time that being portrayed in the film here, uh, Poe hadn't written in many years. He was drunk, and uh, basically, early in the movie, they show him essentially begging for drinks at a bar, and that was basically his existence towards the end. So basically, this movie is trying to give him a much more noble ending than he actually got. Um, I think my bigger issue with it, my two big issues with The Raven is, uh, you know, I don't think it's a solvable mystery. I don't think even if you were a, a scholar of Edgar Allan Poe that this was a mystery that you were really meant to solve. I think you're supposed to take the ride with this movie, and they would tell you when the mystery was solved. I had exactly the same problem, actually. The the clues that the, the twisted serial killer presents to Poe along the way are so obscure that I don't think Poe could have even followed them. Like, oh, the guy who... He just got killed, was on board a ship that was named after a word that was in one of the short stories I wrote many, 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 many years ago. Let's go to that ship. Yeah, right? absolutely. No. <laughs> absolutely. And my other beef, and it pains me to say it, is actually John Cusack. Because I'm a fan of John Cusack as a rule, and sometimes I think he can really turn in a really strong performance and disappear into it. And other times he's John Cusack. 
And I'm used to seeing the John Cusack, you know, bare bones performance and, you know, must love dogs or uh, so these romantic comedies or, you know, uh, 2012 or whatever. But when you got a character like Edgar Allan Poe, which you would think has some juice to it, I don't know. I just saw, I saw John Cusack giving a adequate, but by no means impressive performance. Uh, he seemed really uncomfortable in the role to me. Honestly, he didn't. He sort of goes between being too over the top and between just being jittery, jittery and not seeming like he wants to be doing his job. Uh, I think we needed to like Poe more. Definitely. Because uh, they, if they show him early in the film begging for drinks, which is, again, true, but uh, he's arrogant. He's like, I'm the greatest writer in this room. And, you know, getting people to finish lines of The Raven uh, in the bar and things like this. Which was one of my favorite scenes in the movie, to be honest. Really? <laughs> but, um, honestly, he, he, yeah, he, we didn't really, he's, we're not given any big reason to like his character. No. Uh, he, the fact that he has a sweetheart kind of endears us to him a little bit more, but the way he treats her, I wasn't that huge a fan of. <laughs> the, honestly, he seemed like a caricature of Poe. Hmm. rather than a real person. Well, and it's probably closer to the more authentic sort of miserable drunk. I was in love with my cousin Poe <laughs> uh, <laughs> of the time. Um, and I understand that actually making him a hateful, like consciously making him a hateful character would be not the way to go, but to ignore it completely, maybe not either. But I don't know. I think we needed to be cheering for him. I think we needed to, you know, feel like we understood Poe more. I mean, I understood that Luke Evans, the chief investigator, thought he would be uh, a suspect for the crimes. That makes sense. Uh, oh, that's the other thing. The, the Luke Evans, the chief inspector character, mm -hmm. say one interesting thing about him. I, <laughs> you see, <laughs> uh, uh, he is the chief inspector. He's in charge of the case. He pushes the plot. But I mean, is there anything about that character? Like, I don't even know that it's a performance issue. I think that's in the in the pages. There's just nothing to that part. Yeah. He's not even a sidekick. He's an, an exposition machine. I don't... That's the main problem with this movie, too, is we just don't care any, anything about any of the characters. Even the even the woman who's kidnapped Poe's true love, mm -hmm. we don't really care about her. Yeah. I, I was I honestly couldn't have cared less if she was trapped in a wall forever. Yeah. Um, I think that to an aesthetic degree, like a production design, a lot of those things looked good. The swing guillotine, or the, the walled-in buried alive, which is, of course, a theme in a lot of the post stories, uh, I, I think were realized, well, I mean, they looked right, but they didn't feel right. I didn't feel like, oh my god, she's gasping for air. Mm -hmm. Like, even in that really shitty remake of The Vanishing with Kiefer Sutherland, there's that scene where he wakes up in a coffin absolutely and terrifying. it's horrifying mm -hmm. the rest of the movie is not very good but at least there was that oh you got me there and uh you didn't get me there yeah uh, to its credit like you were saying the movie does look very good they yeah. went to i believe it was budapest to shoot this one where they could actually get some period appropriate buildings that would look right to represent baltimore in 1841 yeah and the costuming is quite good it's just pretty much everything that would make us care about what's going on isn't. It's not anchored on anything. And, uh, like, between not having a solvable mystery and not having a likable protagonist, I, I found it weary going. I mean, I didn't hate the movie. I wasn't like, can we turn this off? But I saw it through. But 
I felt like I was forgetting it as I was watching it. So totally not right high praise. <laughs> not <right> high <laughs> praise to the Raven. Quote the Raven. I don't care. Quite. The uh, one last thing I need to mention Go. with this one. Uh, the soundtrack. I'm not sure if you're paying any attention. I would not be surprised if you weren't. <laughs> it didn't make an impression either way. Let's say that. Well, the... Composer Lucas Vidal, I believe, owns uh, owes Hans Zimmer and James Newton Howard a sizable chunk in royalties <laughs> really? for having completely ripped off the Batman Begins soundtrack with the Interesting. Maybe you can go online and find that. But yeah, not not much love in the score. All right. Didn't enjoy this one completely. But like I say, it wasn't terrible. Just. Considering the movies you and I have watched from front to back in the past, it's hard to say that this is a, a, a awful. I think if you if you you know if you like John Cusack and you're looking for a way to kill a couple of hours, it's not a complete waste of your life, but it's certainly certainly nothing to get excited about. Yeah, I'm deleting it from my memory as we speak. My name is Malcolm Young. I possess a sacred journal hidden for decades. I read it to you now as a warning. <laughs> It all started at the end of the war. I have come home to find my family in chaos. With each day, there is more of them. next movie I watched was Exit Humanity. Here we go. Okay. <laughs> Canadian-made film, 2010, or 2011. 2011, yes. And uh, set just post the Civil War. Shot in Canada. Uh, super low budget, obviously. Super ambitious. What'd you think? <laughs> well, this movie is obviously cheap. You can see that from the very first uh, few frames. It's rough around the edges in more ways than one, both in the screenplay and in the soundtrack, in the makeup, but it tries so damn hard, and that's one of the reasons why you root for it. So, like I say, it's a cheap film. This isn't necessarily a problem. I've seen lots of cheaply made movies, uh, and if you're prepared to abide some cheapness, then you might be able to give this day, uh, movie its day in court. And here's its day in court. Uh, what did you think of it, Larry? Well, here's the thing. I mean, full disclosure, I'm a huge zombie fan, and I want to be supportive of super indie Canadian filmmaking because someday I would like to contribute to super indie Canadian filmmaking. So I want to like this movie, but I have a hard time just telling anyone, yeah, by all means, go watch Exit Humanity. It's all over the place and uh there are moments that i think are really really strong and uh there are other things that just don't work that should the movie is narrated and it's sort of broken into chapters by this narration from uh what's his name uh brian, uh, cox. brian cox who's an actor i really like and it is so incongruous with everything else in the movie it's 
I keep on saying it, it feels like I was watching a History Channel special yes. more than I was watching a movie. It felt like a, a reenactors instead of actors a lot of the time. Although I really did like our lead. I thought he committed really and tried really hard. He was asked to pull off a lot of real emotional stuff, and uh, he did not roll his eyes. He didn't hold his nose while he made this performance. He really gave it, mm-hmm. and so I liked him. But the narration didn't work. The animation took you out of the movie. And uh, at just under two hours, it's it's a slog at times. Yes, just so your listeners know what what we're talking about with the animation and narration is that the movie is framed as though it's a series a journal. of journal entries yeah. uh, by a uh, former Confederate soldier. Uh, William lived, Young. William, Edward Young. Edward Young, right. Yeah, lives in Tennessee. Um, and so what we're, we're given is we're given the movie narrated by Brian Cox and the, Edward Young is also an artist as well. And he's always drawing in his journal. And so oftentimes throughout the course of the movie, we'll see the movie sequences acted out with animation. Now, I'm not entirely sure how much of this was done for the sake of art and how much of it was done for the sake of having run out of money. Because, honestly, a lot of the animation looks like storyboard art to me. What do you think? Well, I've actually, uh, in my in my official ranking and reviewing of it, what I mentioned is that at times it felt like a movie that was trying to be salvaged in the editing room. Yes. Like they, they shot a movie and they're like, oh, this is not quite there yet, but... Uh, we dig up some more money, we get some Brian Cox, we throw some animation here, we, we dress it up, and, uh, you know, maybe we got us a movie. I uh, can see that. That's sort of my, my thought. Uh, the other thing is, is that despite the low production value in a lot of things, I mean, uh, it's convincingly enough set historically, I think. Uh, but they also have these genre faces that show up. Bill Mosley plays sort of the evil, uh, Guy who's sort of in charge of uh, a group General of, Williams, right? General Williams, yeah. He's sort of uh, trying to find a solution to this bizarre zombie plague. Uh, and then you got Dee Wallace, who uh, I had a huge 80s crush on. She was E.T.'s mom, <laughs> and she was the mom in Cujo. And she's in lots and lots and lots of genre movies. The people who are fans of horror movies see Dee Wallace a lot. And... Uh, and, you know, you get you get these, you know, genre people in there, and you don't too much with them. The, one of the huge problems with this movie is the screenplay, honestly. The, I mean, you can't really fault the dialogue, because it wasn't so bad. Uh, you can't really fault the historical setting, because once again, not so bad. The concept isn't a bad one either, but where it falls apart is in its structure. Uh, firstly, the, the about the first half an hour, maybe even more of the movie, our main character, Edward Young, spends the movie running around in the forest going, Oh! And being really sad. And by the time that's over, you just want to turn the movie off. <laughs> and then when it comes to the actual characters, yes, I can see why these are characters, but they are cartoons. Uh, General Williams in particular, we're told he's a bad guy by another character. We see him doing bad things. It's never explained. Why he is like he is. McCaddy is like the surgeon or the doctor who's supposedly looking for a cure for this. And they tried to make a sort of big moment out of his arc, and I just did not get it at Mm -hmm. all. And I like those actors, again. That was the thing. It was cool to see them in the movie. I liked that they were there, but I'm not sure why they were there. Yeah. Well, with the General Williams, too, I remember there's one scene where he's just... We see him 
running around his office, tearing things apart and punching stuff and roaring. and Frustration. Yeah, yes. we realize, okay, so he's angry, but we're not entirely sure why he's angry. Is he, he's, is he angry because some people escaped? Is he angry because he has control issues? Is he angry just because he's completely crazy? Mm-hmm. The movie never addresses this. Very important to do that when you're establishing your antagonist is to explore them as a character unto themselves. So as we continue to take a large shit on Exit Humanity, I do want to say some nice things about it too. Well, go ahead. Let's hear those. I would like to hear um, what you say. First of all, uh, on a concept uh, level, and this is interesting if it was more richly explored, he's, he's capturing people from the outside areas either who have ran, fled from their military service or just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time and systematically having them bitten by zombies to try and find someone who's immune. I, I, they never implicitly say that's what they're doing, but that seems to be clear as to what they're doing. It, it's, it explains why the McHattie character feels such guilt and it explains why we're to understand, uh, that, you know, uh, the, the Bill Mosley character was supposed to be such a bad guy because he's so heartless as to subject these people to that. But here's the thing, and here's what could have been an interesting twist of the screenplay. We find out that one of our little band of survivors is, in fact, immune, and that he was, in fact, going... If, if, if she hadn't have been rescued, and if that hadn't have taken place, he might have found that solution that he was looking for and... Contrary to being the villain of this movie, actually ended up something of a hero, despite the measures he took. There's a lot of interesting ideas here. I like some of the scenes of, uh, you know, uh, William Young walking through the cool sort of landscapes and randomly encountering zombies and dispatching them. But they're tertiary scenes in the movie. It's like between this scene and another scene, now he's in the middle of somewhere killing some zombie and then the next scene. They don't feel tied together well, but I'm telling you, isolated moments of this movie... I support, and I would I would watch another movie directed by John Geddes. I, I I don't think he is untalented. I think that uh, it's hobbled by its budget, and they tried to save it in the editing room. And what you got is Exit Humanity, which is more interesting than good. And I think if you're uh, if you're a hardcore genre fan, I'd say give it a watch. But if you're anything short of someone who loves 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 zombies, you're going to be bored to tears. Uh, well, yes. I my feelings on this movie are summed up by one scene, which happens very early on. So no no worries for spoilers here. Uh, Edward Young is searching the woods for his son and finds his son, unfortunately, as a zombie. Yeah. And he grabs his son and uh, in a loving embrace, tearful embrace, puts the pistol to his son's head. And the music is swelling, and there are zombies still kind of shambling towards him. So we know he has to do this quickly, but he's in a horrible emotional situation. I'm going to quote my wife here. She turned to me in the climax of the scene and said, I can see why this would be a good scene. Yeah. All of the pieces are there to make that a good scene, (laughs) but it just didn't quite hit you the way they wanted it to, did it? Yep. It's a frustrating movie for me because unlike The Raven, I mean, I guess I wanted to like The Raven too. I mean, I like Edgar Allan Poe, but The Raven had so many things going for it already with its production design, like, that I felt more disappointed by its failings than I did Exit Humanities because Exit Humanity had no money and all, all the ambition in the world. 
Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and I want to like it, but it's it's a tough it's a tough sell. I agree. It all goes back to the screenplay. The yeah. screenplay was was rotten. Uh, I guess that works with the genre that we're working with here. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the screenplay was bad, and that drags the whole film down for me. Uh, and just one more time, I believe the lead character is Mark Gibson, the lead actor. I'm gonna give some props to him for 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 putting it all out there. He acted the shit out of that. He is asked <laughs> to emote and to scream and to cry and to look otherwise ridiculous, especially when you're on a set doing it. Like he put his heart into it, and the end product was, I'm sure, not what he hoped it would be. But I respect the fact that he was all in, and uh, you know, it's it's a movie that I want to like more than I did, but. Uh, that was that was my experience of exit humanity. Well said. What's the plan? Identify the heretic. Put him in the cage. Split any man from his ass to his apple. Fumes of the dead hung in the air like poison. Plague more cruel, more pitiless than war had descended upon us. <laughs> this was not God's work but witchcraft. <laughs> Word has reached the bishop of a village that does not suffer as the rest. I must see for myself how this village is kept safe. All right, Black Death, uh, 2010 film directed by Christopher Smith and starring our boyfriend, Sean Bean. <laughs> My boyfriend. <laughs> J. Adrian Cook is a big uh, Sharp fan, uh, and uh, Sean Bean stars in this. Uh, it's not really a miniseries. It's just sort of a straight-up series, isn't it? It's, uh, I would say it's a mini-series made up of several different movies about Sharp. But they've been doing them for like 20 years or something, so... Yeah. Anyway, uh, they're not horror movies, but we would both like to recommend to you Sharp. <laughs> that's and the first I've heard of you recommending Sharp, Larry. <laughs> I'm speaking on behalf of us both here. Watch some Sharp and make up your own mind. Indeed. Okay. <laughs> What did you think of Black Death? Well, uh, just as a little introduction, I think the, some praise has to be given to this movie for successfully recreating the time of uh, the Black Death and the bubonic plague era that was sweeping Europe in the 14th century. Uh, at this time, you had people who believed so fervently in God and the afterlife, heaven and hell, and when this plague came through and killed, what, one out of every three people, there was a general idea that God was punishing people for their sins. And the world was going to end for right. many, many, many people. Uh, entire villages in the countryside emptied as people ran away from the plague or were killed by it. Uh, there were weird cults that started up. You may have heard of St. Vitus's Dance which was possibly a result of the plague, but it was a weird series of events in Europe where people just got together together and danced. And they danced and they danced until they dropped from exhaustion. Nobody really knew what they were doing. Uh, it was just one of these weird little cults that happened as a result of people believing the world was going to end. So this movie does a great job of portraying this time period with all the strange cults and weird ways of thinking. At the same time, uh, it establishes its tone of 
horrible bleakness. <laughs> and when you watch this movie, within the first f few minutes, you know that nothing good is going to come out of this. <laughs> what did you think of it? <laughs> well, uh, I'm a fan, too. You, the stuff you're talking about, the, the plague and the Black Death, I remember being told or hearing something about the... Uh, I don't know if it's the dance you're talking about, but the pocket full of Posey reference... People mm. would believe if you stuffed your pocket full of certain types of flowers, it would protect you from the plague. And that hasha hasha, we all fall down, was actually a reference to the people of the plague falling to their death. Well, that's one of the theories of the nursery rhyme. Yeah. There, there are a lot of th theories of nursery rhymes that aren't necessarily true but sound good. Well, let's say that's true because I think that's creepy. Okay, yeah, that, that's <laughs> awesome. That's totally what happened. And, yeah, you're so smart, Larry. Um, yeah, well, I, I liked Black Death. But when I say I liked it, it was an intensely unpleasant movie in a lot of ways. Very. Uh, the subject matter, and uh, for me, I took it uh, as more about religious extremism, uh, sort of run amok, you know. And, and during the time of a plague, as you were talking about, of course, it's sharpened to a, a much more specific point. <laughs> uh, but everybody we see in this movie, including people that we like, have ridiculous, like, religious biases they are ruled by their beliefs uh sean penn is uh or sean penn <laughs> sean bean is uh is basically a religious warrior he's uh, a knight for the church and uh he's being led by this little monk who looks like his balls haven't dropped yet he's like he looks like he's 12 years old um but he carries the authority of the church with him uh, it's just like a lot of interesting stuff that you don't see in movies that often, period, let alone in a horror movie. And they do manage to capture that mindset of God existing and his uh, destruction of the earth uh, being imminent. In the, that belief in the characters, they have discussions about it. It's, it's, uh, they, they put it in the show so well. Um, there are some good performances in this. Uh, as you know, Sean Bean is one of my... Uh, favorite actors he in this one he just kind of does what he does really well he he's noble he's and noble and he howls evil. out his line in midlands english and then he gets killed because he always gets killed <laughs> but this movie also has uh david warner in it uh who big I, fan <laughs> i can't i don't understand why i like david warner so much maybe most people would know him as the uh bodyguard character in titanic titanic right um, but he's also in countless horror movies, usually as the exposition machine. Quite. This is what's happening. This is why. Now he'll either be killed or be taken off of the <laughs> out of the movie for the rest of the film. <laughs> but, uh, and it also has Tim McKinnery in it too, who some of you might remember as uh, Sir Percy in the Black in the Black Adder series. Yes. And seeing him always makes me smile. And it, I really enjoyed seeing him in a dramatic role for this one. And finally, uh, the uh, monk character you were mentioning uh, is played by Eddie Redmayne, who I believe is a very, very good actor. And as officially after seeing this movie, I would like to see him in more things. He is very convincing when he's frightened or when he's weeping. I believe he is feeling that emotion. So props to Eddie Redmayne. And he's actually older than he looks. Oh, yeah? Yeah. It's... <laughs> I don't know. That's I think in a way his character is kind of the most. He definitely has the most interesting arc of uh, of anybody in the movie. Um, I, to be honest, like I'm a Christopher Smith fan, the guy who wrote and directed this film, so I kind of went in with uh, 
expectations. And I wasn't sure. I mean, I was enjoying the movie. It was clearly the best mounted production that he'd ever done. They spent some money on this, and it looks great. But I wasn't sure what I felt about the movie until maybe a little less than an hour into it. There's a sequence where they come upon this woman who's about to be uh, burned as a witch or executed as a witch. And uh, Sean Bean handles the situation basically by taking this poor woman away from the people who are going to slowly kill her and quickly dispatching her himself. Oh, he was he was being nice to her. Yes, he was doing this woman a favor. But, I mean, you're talking about the unreserved bleakness of the movie. At that point, you either have to go with it and accept that this is the movie <laughs> that you are watching or, you know, this is not for you. Um, but this is one of the great things about Black Death, though, is that... Uh, when we actually get to this village, which they're going in their quest for, uh, the atmosphere of the movie changes very suddenly, whereas everything before it had been full of buboes and blood and uh, filth and fleas and misery and shit like that. As soon as we're in the village, nice trimmed grass, everyone's wearing neat outfits, we're getting lots of shots of sunny skies and wonderful <laughs> clear in Rivendell all of a sudden. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And uh, that, that at the same time, what, because we're in this environment that's so clean, we feel creeped out by it. And as we should, because as it turns out, this village is full of pagans. No spoilers there. <laughs> we're warned about pagans being in this movie and necromancers and stuff like that. So oh, we know something. Is there anything here. worse than those pagans? I joke. <laughs> <laughs> I myself am a neo-pagan, a discordian. Well, that's not helping your case. Shut up. <laughs> um, there's a, would, would you mind if I go on a little diatribe here? Bring Larry? it. Okay. That's why you're here. Yeah. Little historical diatribe. Feel free to cut it out if you want. Uh, there's a scene in this movie about hitting the halfway mark where bandits attack our main characters. And we see what is very common in medieval movies, which is a huge bloodbath with everybody charging at each other and ha limbs being hacked off and blood spurting. And uh, basically one side being completely wiped out and the other emerging... Largely very, untouched. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is uh, just yet another movie that portrays a really, really unrealistic portrayal of what combat is like, particularly in the medieval era. Uh, what you would see in medieval combat, because most people do not have, didn't have modern military training. In fact, I would say none did. Because, <laughs> they were all brawlers. Yes. They didn't have the psychological equipment needed to actually butcher another human being. It's really difficult to do, apparently. I myself haven't done it, but I can feel the uh, a lot of reasons in my brain why I wouldn't ever want to do it. Of course. And only about 1 in 10 people were actually doing any real fighting in that era. Maybe less. There was about 2% that were complete psychos and did whatever they wanted. Everyone ran away from them. But as for everybody else, they tried to look scary, and they shouted a lot, and they sort of did little jabs at each other that weren't meant to hurt anybody particularly, right. and they did a lot of running away. And usually melees in the medieval era were very short and quick before one team decided to run away, and then the other team started stabbing them all in the back as they ran away. <laughs> Backstabbing is... Uh, historically noted by many, many generals. They've been trying to figure out for years why people love to hit each other in the back when one team starts running away, and it's mainly because you can't see the face. Yeah. 
So you're saying that this movie should have had more running away? Uh, well, <laughs> I'm not saying anything. What I what I'm saying is that this movie is showing once again the inaccurate uh, Hollywood stylized ideal of what a medieval battle would be, and at some point. I would like to see a movie that does it right. It's unfortunate, too, because it's otherwise feels pretty authentic. Yeah. Yeah. All right. All right. We'll take your point. Uh, <laughs> I didn't I didn't know anything particular about the, what certain battles would be like in the period, but at the time that it happened, it felt like the movie needed an action scene, and it got one. <laughs> Quite. Quite. <laughs> and uh, it was well enough rendered for me. I, it, didn't, it didn't bother me, but I, I didn't bring any baggage to it, so uh, maybe it should have. Yeah. So... Uh... Without getting into the details of how exactly this movie ends, as I warned earlier, it ends very, very bleakly. <laughs> yes. Um, some people might have a problem with this, um, and in fact, I did too. It seemed like the worst thing that could have happened to anybody, in all, to all the characters, actually happened to them. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to say, well, maybe we should have dialed back the bleakness a little bit, but honestly, that would be so against the spirit of this movie. Uh, it's interesting when you compare to what you were talking about with the burrowers as well, right? Uh, like, uh, the burrowers is, as you ends about as bleakly as it can for everyone as well, but mm -hmm. you, 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 you loved it. Um, <laughs> I, I had a similar sort of response as in like, oof, that, that makes me feel icky. I need to take a shower now that I've finished watching this movie. But yes. I couldn't think of another ending that would have been satisfactory to what I just watched. And neither can I. If you, if any of those characters had a happier ending, then I would have felt like they had betrayed what they were working up to for the whole movie. Yes. So um, I would put this lower on the end of like Christopher Smith's films. Like I, I think he's talented, and I'll watch whatever he makes. And I do like this movie. I think it's his best made film, but probably in some ways his least enjoyable one. <laughs> yes. Yes, it's not a very enjoyable movie, is it? It's just too damn. Which is bleak. not to say it's bad. It's just not something that you enjoy. Is it, yeah. Like, did you enjoy watching Schindler's List? <laughs> it's, it's, you know, like, <laughs> I, I, I go to a large example there, but I mean, because it's not enjoyable does not mean it's a bad movie necessarily. It just means you're not going to walk away whistling a tune, you know? <laughs> you might need to watch a few episodes of The Simpsons as an antidote after you've seen this movie. Quite so, quite so. And congratulations on making a Schindler's List joke. <laughs> the first of many, sir. We have contact. Starboard beam, 11 miles out, sir. Stand by to board survivors. Next man, let's go. Next man, next man. We got three survivors, one's a woman. Yeah! Try not to fraternize with the men. Some of them get a little strange. Strange isn't superstitious. Isn't strange. That's looking bad luck I ever saw. In the midst of war. And the hold, boys. Sound good? Yes, sir. The crew of a U.S. submarine. Hey, you're oversteering. Skin some resistance, sir. Is about to cross the line. Accidents happen. Jeremy, what did you think of Below? Well, uh, that was a fairly decent show. The... <laughs> They got the history right, I can say that much about it. Uh, one of the things that I really enjoyed was that they not only got a lot of naval jargon in there, specifically submarine jargon, but they actually seemed to make an attempt to recreate the 
accent that you hear on television, or I shouldn't say television, radio, that you would have heard uh, in America in the 1940s. Uh, the sort of voice that sounds like this. Everyone's a bit of a newscaster, see? Yes, yeah. that's right. And so the characters are talking like this in the movie, and it's a little bit jarring when you hear it at first. But you Everybody get does it. it. Yeah. yeah, except for the English characters. Fair enough. Right. Uh, what can you say about this show? I, it seemed like it had a lot of promise. Um, but in the end, for me, specifically, it didn't quite deliver on the goods. The computer animation was a little bit cheesy in spots. It just didn't look real enough, and then the ending left me very cold without giving away anything about the ending. We might have to discuss it at some point, but for now, we'll table it. <laughs> okay, well, I'll, I'll just paint it in broad brushstrokes here. Uh, this is a haunted submarine movie, and it looks as though the ghosts are building up to some really, really sort of scary climax. And by the time we get to the end, the... Uh, one of the characters solves all the problems with a gun, mm -hmm. and the ghosts don't show up in the final scenes at all. It left me a little bit cold, honestly. Okay. All right. Well, uh, here's my thing with Below. I, I quite enjoyed Below. I think uh, the production values were quite strong. Um, I guess some of the CG is off. This was 2002. This is a good 10 years and change ago, so... Uh, I think that it was pretty on par for what you would see in 2002, for the most part. Uh, was it specifically like the underwater imagery that was bothering you, or just the ghosty stuff? The or? ghosty stuff, when right. we saw ghostly faces and things like that. It, right. it didn't convince me. You just saw cartoon, cartoon. Yeah. Well, what I dug is that they spent a lot of time on the submarine in the world with the guys, with everything being real. Uh, and it's... I, don't, I couldn't give you exact minute count of the movie before something genuinely inexplicable takes place. I think it involves the record player being turned on at an inopportune time. Yes, that's uh, one of the wonderful things about this movie, actually, is uh, it is a brave attempt to mash the submarine genre with the ghost genre of movie. Yeah. And there's a great scene where... You know, because you got to have a depth charging scene yeah. if you're in a submarine movie. Every movie, everyone will have that, <laughs> where everyone's huddled together, looking up like they could see what was going on out there. Yeah, all the all the power is off, the engines are off, everyone's and everyone's being quiet. Yeah, and then all of a sudden, Benny Goodman starts blaring on a gramophone in the submarine, really, really, really loud. And yeah, they rush to turn it off, but who did it? Why would they do it? What is going on? Yeah, and then the depth charges start falling. Yeah, and uh, I, I like that. I like, uh, you know, they, of course they assume somebody on board did it, and there's some pretty bad repercussions that happen there. But uh, we know because we know we're watching a movie that there's more going on. That it's there's some supernatural elements, mm -hmm. um, but. Really, the supernatural stuff kind of takes a back seat in this movie, and I didn't mind that so much. <laughs> the stuff that bothered me more was uh, Olivia Williams, who plays a British medical officer. Who I've had a crush on for years. She's really, like, she's a good actress, strong performance, but this whole Nancy Drew stuff that she does on board the, the, <laughs> the ship, where she's sneaking into the captain's quarters and reading logbooks and solving the mystery, I didn't buy yeah. I bought all the guys on the submarine and how blown away they were to even be in the presence of a woman. And uh, <clears throat> they see her as something of bad luck, but they're also very fascinated by her. Mm -hmm. uh, um, 
I got all of that stuff. I didn't believe her character as much. It was like they were, they needed to have a strong female character, even if there wasn't place for one historically. Like, there wasn't any strong female characters on board submarines in World War II. I'm sorry. That's just the case. Uh, I seem to recall she, uh, announces that she believes the submarine is haunted at a time period which no one should believe that. Yet. Yeah, I don't think they would have believed it at that point when she says that. She says, she says there's something else going on here, but yeah, we all know what she's implying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, like, I found her character much more problematic. I didn't mind, and usually I would, frankly, that the, that the, you know, supernatural stuff or the monster stuff or whatever took a bad seat, because usually when I watch these types of movies, that's what I'm in for. But, uh, I, I got enough into the characters in the world that, uh, it didn't bother me that much. It took a while for me, um, and I think that might be a, a fault of the screenplay that early on, <clears throat> pretty much all the characters except for the the solid submarine crew, all of them have mysterious backstories, and we're not really sure what they're up to. Mm-hmm. And it's a little bit difficult to get close to people that we're not really sure what they're up to. So. I wasn't sure who to root for. I wasn't sure to, who to identify with. Finally, it ends up being Olivia Williams for the most part. Well, and I think that's pretty obvious. Like, when she's there, that she's going to be our protagonist. Uh, I felt pretty safe whenever she was around, which I didn't feel particularly safe for any of the other characters. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, there's some broad strokes with some of the characters, like Weird Wally that the Zach Galifianakis plays, for whatever reason, is allowed to have this ridiculous Klondike beard. <laughs> so you can tell him apart from the rest of the guys in the ship, presumably. <laughs> Once again, yet another uh, example of a comic actor in a dramatic role that I enjoyed. Yeah, no, I thought he was fine in it. And in 2002, nobody was really caring about Zach Galifianakis. So That's true. He wasn't really around then. He sure looked younger, didn't he? <laughs> uh, but, yeah, he was fine. And uh, for the most part, I, I liked I liked the world here. And I, I liked the way the camera zoomed through the submarine in, in such a fashion that it was faster than the men could move in the submarine at times. And I really felt a good, strong sense of place. Mm-hmm. So if you look at it, like you said, as a haunted house in a submarine, it's the... <laughs> Haunting of Hill House, if Hill House was a submarine. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, there's conventions of the submarine movie, and they use them. Mm-hmm. And there's conventions of the Haunted House movie, and they use them. And I think largely it works well. Uh, but they we... also have new ideas, too. I don't believe I've seen in any submarine movie, and maybe that's just me, I haven't seen... Das the, Boot? The, well, it didn't happen in Das Boot, where the hydrogen level in the air supply started getting to a little bit too high without spoiling anything. Yeah. It causes some problems. Bad things will happen, and that <laughs> is the case. Yeah, and uh, again, I, I, I believe the crew. I believe the Jeopardy, and uh, I was rooting for them. Yeah. One last thing I'd really like to say about this movie, which I have to thank it for, uh, in this age of decadence and decay where manliness and men are derided and <laughs> yes. uh, men are feeling more put upon than, than ever uh, maybe for good reasons or maybe not this movie has written a page in the annals of manliness and I'll, I'll just list it off for you here Larry if you can command a submarine crew after your commanding officer has run off to do his own thing and is absent if the boat is being rocked by explosions, there's water pouring in. If the crew is jittery because they think the sub might be haunted. If you can keep a level head and do all these things while you're completely naked, then, my son, then you will be a man. 
So all I have to do to prove my manliness to you is to captain a submarine while in the nude. A haunted submarine. A haunted submarine. Not just any submarine. This, we're talking about man. Exactly. <laughs> Get on that, would you? Uh, one thing I would like to mention that's also interesting, and that is very interesting. Yes. Uh, the, the script is, <laughs> is co-written by Darren Aronofsky. And I guess originally the movie was going to be directed by Darren Aronofsky, but he instead decided to do a different horror movie called Requiem for a Dream. Now, I want you to close your eyes and imagine what this movie would have looked like had it been directed by Darren Aronofsky. Uh, I don't know that it would have been better necessarily, uh, but uh, it would be interesting to see. He, like the, he'll have twice the amount of cuts in his movies that you'll see in any other movie. So I think a lot of those really cool panning shots through the submarine and uh, I don't know. I would love to see it. Yeah. I wasn't. I'm not necessarily the biggest fan of Requiem for a Dream, but Below has a, a solid foundation of a script to work with, mm-hmm. um, and I think he could have done something very interesting with it. Yeah. Too bad we can't live in some simultaneous realities <laughs> yeah. at the same time. Maybe he'll remake it someday. Yeah. Um, <laughs> now I, I think that just to do the movie justice, and just so we can understand where each other come from, we should talk about the third act. But before we do that, we're just gonna say if you haven't seen Below. We're going to totally blow the whole ending for you. If you, if you want to do that, then go right ahead. I'm I'm happy having said what needs yeah. to be said about it. All right. Well, if you want me to go in the broad strokes, what I would say is, as you said, that it is all solved by one person with a gun, and we don't see the spirits. I think that the spirits got what they wanted, and I think that the person who solves it with the gun, I thought that was good enough in that the movie had gone out of our way to make us both like and hate this character. And that act, however ridiculous, is somewhat redemptive. I disagree. Yeah? Yep. It just uh, it this left is me I a feel little like bit we need cold. To talk about it. Yeah, it just left me feeling cold. And what can I say? I wanted the spirits to play more of a part at the ending uh, because they were building up to something. And to have them vanish without any ado mm-hmm. was a little bit jarring for me. Well, I'll go, I'll go, and again, we, we obviously disagree on the ending, but that's fine, that's allowed. But I, I go to The Haunting, the Robert Wise Haunting from 1962. Yes, good movie. Great it. movie. Uh, you don't see the ghost very much in that movie. It's all implied, and it it's really scary as a, as a result. At the end of it, uh, in a similar ghost story fashion, a major character dies, the ghost's got what it's wanted, and... The ghosts are still exist, but the story is finished. Well, I had a problem with that ending, too, honestly. In, but <laughs> I have more of a problem in the remake of The Haunting, where the same things happen, and we see a bunch of child ghosts flying around the house, and she gets this huge angelic power and uses her, her the power of now becoming a spirit to cleanse the house in a big CGI light show. Hate it, hate it, hate it. I would much rather go subtle with a ghost story than go big. Fair enough. That's me. But you don't have to go big in order to have the ghosts seen at the end and vanish uh, or go away or get what they want. I feel like at the end of the movie, we know what the ghosts wanted. We know why the ghosts were doing what they were doing and that they're satiated. And uh, I think that, you know, we know what happened. We know why it happened and we know why it's over. Well, I think you're wrong, and I think less of you as a person. (laughs) Fair enough, fair enough. Well, that was The Below. You should watch it and make up your own mind.
Price's house? No one. Is that? Looks like a wild boar or something. Let's move on, shall we? You check that one while I look in this one. The movie we're going to discuss now is called Dead Birds, and uh, I think it owes more than a little bit to uh, Mr. Lovecraft. What do you think, Jeremy? Um, I think that you are absolutely correct in that assertion, Larry. Uh, this movie is designed to fill you with terror. Uh, most of it is spent following characters through dark rooms and following sets of creepy footprints, building tension, and then you see the really scary thing and you get scared. <laughs> um, it spends so much time terrorizing you that it doesn't spend as much time explaining things as it could possibly do so. And in order to like this movie, you have to uh, be ready for that, basically. Uh, I, this is the second time I've seen it. I didn't like it particularly the first time, but I like it more now. We can get into why. Uh, but what do, you th what do you think, Larry? Well, um, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of Dead Birds. I'm just going to come out right front and say it. I think that it has some creaks and moans. Uh, I think that the first act, which involves a bank heist in a small town, is pretty sloppy and... Definitely where the movie shows its hand is having a low budget the most. But I think once you get these guys to this plantation uh, that's surrounded by the spooky uh, cornfield and everything, and shit starts going down, it sinks into your nerves pretty effectively. Uh, and, uh, you know, yeah, the, the baddies are largely, you know, very computer, and we like to complain about bad, you know, computer effects. Mm -hmm. But they're used sparingly enough that, you know, when you see a flash of that little kid under the bed or, you know... Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's pretty creepy. There's there's really creepy moments to it. I also want to give huge props to the cast. Uh, everybody in this, I think, is really good. And the supporting players, uh, Isaiah Washington, Michael Shannon, and Mark Boone Jr., who all are, you know, constantly working character actors, are, are I think make the movie better than it would have been if you had had your typical no-name, low-budget cast. And the two leads that are played by baby-faced actors, like <laughs> uh, uh, Henry Thomas, who is Elliot in E.T. I will always know that man is Elliot, yeah. no matter what he's in. <laughs> no matter how much facial hair he throws on there, he's still Elliot from E.T., and he still looks like a boy. And Patrick Fugit, who was the main character in Almost Famous, uh, is sort of his right arm, the, the muscle of the gang. And he also looks like he's 13 years old. And I think for some people it will take you out of the movie to think that these guys is badass bank robbers. But I thought of it as more almost kind of authentic. Because at this time, I mean, by the time you are a teenager, you're, by all intents and purposes, you know, an adult. And if you're making your living as a criminal, it's more about guts than brains. I bet you there was a lot of baby-faced cowboys, you know? Well, the the main characters, I don't believe it's ever actually said uh, outright in the course of the movie, but they're wearing Confederate soldier uniforms. I believe that they are deserters mm -hmm. that have turned to a life of crime to support themselves. And they're also hanging out with Isaiah Washington, which is interesting. Yes, yes, <laughs> that is very interesting. 
Um, screenplay for this is solid. The research is solid. Dialogue also solid. Like you say, the computer effects are well not they're that there, good. but they're they're not. They don't overtake it. Mm -hmm. yeah, the computer effects clearly. Watching the credits, you can see they were farmed out to somewhere in Korea mm -hmm. rather than produced in the good old U.S. of A. where the rest of it was. But uh, basically, the only thing that really isn't solid about this show is the exact nature of what is going on. We're given broad brush strokes that this is an evil place, that there is a crazy plantation owner. Did bad things who, to the slaves. Did bad things to his slaves and his family. But as to the exact nature of why this was going on and why this is an evil place and to the extent of the power of that the heroes are facing, uh, well, hero maybe is a strong word, <laughs> the extent of the powers, we are never really given an accurate meter as to show how tough this thing is. Um, there, one of the reasons I like this movie more on second viewing was because I had re read some work by M.R. James, uh, a writer from the early half of the 20th century, and the, one of the hallmarks of his work is that scary stuff happens to the characters, and it's frightening, and we as an audience or readers are never given the full explanation. Scary stuff happens, and then it stops happening, and the characters of the story are left unnerved for the rest of their lives. Yeah. And the same thing happens to the readers of these stories. And I can see now, watching this film, that they were going for something similar with Dead Birds. Um, it goes a little bit overboard in one instance, which I don't mind telling you. A certain character is uh, killed in a very strange fashion, running through a cornfield, and then some guy pops out of the cornfield and goes, and then he's gone. He disappears. Yeah, he's dead. I guess we don't see him again. Presumably, he has entered the spiritual plane. Yeah, he's, uh, yeah. <laughs> that that troubled me a lot too. I'm not. I don't have a problem with the ambiguity or not having everything spelled out for me. I don't mm -hmm. need that. It bothers me more when something happens to a character and I don't understand it, which is what you're talking about with yeah. that specific character. Interesting too, because that character is also largely responsible for giving us the information that we do get. That's true. Uh, like this is the guy who's solving the mystery for. For us, again, it's another one of the largely unsolvable mysteries, but the characters and the, the setting and the creepiness of everything going on keeps me going. Yes, and it's, it's the ambiguity that uh, a lot of modern horror audiences will not be used to if they come to watch Dead Birds, because usually in a horror movie, uh, the monster is lately neat out, uh, uh, sorry, neat, neatly laid out. Easy for you to say. Uh, yes. Uh, your, its powers are explained. How to defeat it is explained in particular because usually the heroes will find its Achilles heel to yeah. do away with it. But that's just not going to happen in Dead Birds and you have to go into this movie fully expecting that Daddy isn't going to explain everything yeah. for you. And going back to what you said earlier about people walking slowly down dark hallways holding a candle. Yes. Uh, first of all, that's something that happens in every horror movie ever. And usually there's no justification for it. In this case, there is no electricity. They're at this place for the first time ever. They're looking for a place to stay for the night. So they don't have any real choice but to fumble around in the dark with candles. So, uh, I mean, it's not like Evil Dead, where they're constantly walking slowly into one room or another waiting for the loud noise <laughs> to happen, which actually would bother me more. You know, the, they take pains to, you know, explain at least why the characters are doing what they're doing, if not to explain what's happening to all of our characters. Indeed. 
in the end, I really like this movie. Uh, it sets out to not just to scare you, but also to challenge you as a viewer, and that's something that not a lot of horror movies do. Especially low-budget ones. Yes. Yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. So, thumbs up on, on Dead Birds. I actually think the weakest thing about this movie in a lot of ways is the title. It's not a very sexy title, is it? It doesn't really have much to do with what's going on. There is a dead, skinless bird in the Yeah, film. one of them steps on a dead bird as they're walking into the place. I remembered that, making a note of that, but mm-hmm. uh, I don't know. Uh, I have a feeling like the title was probably an afterthought. It was the one thing that they never quite settled on, and, and that's what it ended up being. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do think it's a movie, much like The Burrowers, that more people should see, regardless. Uh, and it's definitely in keeping with our relentlessly bleak tone, but... Uh, I think that there's fun to be had at this one, more so than with the Burrowers or Black Death. You'll definitely see something scary in this one. Yeah. Yeah. So we've gotten to the exciting part. We've had our little discussion about all of the six films. And now it's uh, J. Adrian Cook's turn to rank and review in our inaugural episode of Rank and Review. What was your least favorite of these six films and why? Number six on my list is Exit Humanity. And it's mainly because of the screenplay. Just not being up to par and dragging the whole thing down. Next on the list, number five, is The Raven, which... Uh, despite all of its promise, ended up being rather, uh, well, boring. <laughs> then is number four, uh, is Below, which once again had a lot of promise but didn't quite deliver it. Number three is Black Death, which is a very, very good movie, which is only slightly hampered by its bleak tone. Number two is Dead Birds, which I enjoyed quite a bit as both a scarathon and also as something to challenge my expectations as a horror watcher. And then number one, The Burrowers, which I've said is one, one of my favorite, favorite movies, movies ever. <laughs> did I introduce you to The Burrowers or did you discover it on your own? Uh, we can thank Netflix for Netflix that Netflix did that one a while. Yeah. I wish I could have been responsible for your favorite movie. Well, I'm glad that you got one of your favorite movies. And our lists are shockingly close, but sadly just short of the prize winner. <laughs> <laughs> I also ranked Exit Humanity number six, but it pained me to do it. It pained me to do it. I think that there are some good things to be seen in there. It's just too long. It's weighed down by too much extemporaneous stuff. And I have to be honest when I rank them. And uh, I think if, you, if you're if you a hardcore lover of zombie movies, if you want to support Canadian cinema, watch it. But it is the least of these movies. And this is from this is from a hardcore zombie lover himself, so that means a lot. Yeah. Uh, and I agree that The Raven is number five. It just made number five for me, though. I really was. I was... <laughs> I was at war over this. They had the Raven had so much that 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 Exit Humanity didn't. It had a budget and you know production value, and uh, it had a rich history to bleed on. And I thought that they should have done better, and didn't. So number five, all of the rest of the movies are complete enthusiastic endorsements. I I like the rest of them, but for me number uh, four would be Black Death. Uh, it's in a way it's, it's very, very bleak and it felt the least like a horror movie in, in some ways. It almost just seemed like a, uh, 
crushingly depressing uh, <laughs> historical flick with little tinges of supernatural here and there. But uh, uh, yeah, uh, again, really well mounted, but I would say number four for that. Then I go below. Uh, again, good production values, solid ghost story mixed with solid submarine story. I thought it was well executed. Dead Birds would be number two. Uh, again, it's a little rough around the edges, but it's creepy. It's got the Lovecraft tributes to it. I think that the uh, Babyface cast does just well, you know. Uh, it's definitely worth a look. And bar none, yes, I agree, the best movie of these six. I may not go as far as to say it's my favorite movie ever made, but it is a damn good horror movie, The Burrowers. That's where I stand. Yep. Oh, that's so very, very close. So I guess I don't get the prize. <laughs> yes, no prize for you. Yeah, can I get an Oreo from you? Later <laughs> you get a prize of being able to do this again, should you choose to to rank another six movies with me. Because we'll I see. think it's fun. I do have some awards to hand out. All here. right, please give out the Jerry's. <laughs> <laughs> the first annual Jerry's. All right. I hope this is what you call them after, uh, <laughs> even after this inaugural performance. But we'll see. It's your show. Uh, the Best Scare. Uh, when all is said and done, I'm having a lot of trouble getting the image of the thing peering out of the hayloft at me uh, that happens in Dead Birds. Some sort of skinless, eyeless thing leering down there, and I still kind of see that thing every night before I go to sleep, <laughs> and it's been about a week since I watched that film. So, good job with that. Uh, best Death, we already talked about this, the surprise exit of Clancy Brown. Nothing like getting... Shot in the carotid artery in the bitter, uh, middle of your big speech about what we're going to do next and then getting your face hacked off. Uh, biggest what-the-fuck moment. Uh, we've also already discussed the character vanishing into thin air and dead birds for no particular reason that is explained. And the biggest unintentional laugh would be the hero of Hexit Humanity running around in the woods howling for half an hour. <laughs> It really just, <laughs> the laughs keep adding up as it keeps happening over and over again. Yes, the edges of madness he experiences will probably <laughs> echo what most viewers will be experiencing while they watch it. Quite right. All right. Is that all you need of me? That's all I need of you, except for to say thank you so much for doing it. And uh, by all means, if you want to plug your band or anything you've been writing or doing or work and people seek you out on the Internet, by all means. Uh I wasn't prepared for this. Well, um, don't, well you can do it later. <laughs> okay, well, not at all. You can stay mysterious. No, I'm not going to stay mysterious. I probably should promote myself here. I am in a band called The Residuals, Irish uh, Celtic folk band uh, in and around Saskatoon. We have a web presence on Facebook. Look us up there if you're interested. I'm also a writer of comedy and horror myself, and if you're interested, you can look at my blog. It's at pharophobia.blogspot.com. That's no bullshit. The man is scared of mummies. Yes, it's true. I have uh, I am afraid of mummies. <laughs> <laughs> there were no mummies in this uh, series of movies here, but we came pretty damn close in Dead Birds. <laughs> Important for you to know how to spell pharaoh because I was misspelling it. For <laughs> a couple, first couple of years I was uh, managing my blog, but it's actually P-H-A-R-A-O-H. Easy for you to say. Yes. Anyway, so that's my uh, plugging here. I hope you've had a good time listening. I've had a good time watching. Thanks, Larry. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks so much. If you would like to write Rank and Review, and why wouldn't you, you can do so at rankandreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K 
N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. This is usually the part of the show where I would be reading the email, but since the first few episodes, presumably I'm not going to get a lot of mail about, I invite you to enjoy some fake mail. This first letter is from Trolls Rule 547, and just for the records, it is all in caps. Dear Rankin Review, you suck. You don't know what you're talking about. Stop using The Lord of the Rings as an analogy for every thought you have on every film, loser. Sounds like you recorded this in a whale's ass. Kill yourself post-haste. Thank you very much, Trolls Rule 547. And for the record, uh, if you agree or disagree, or if you have anything good or bad to say, if you take the time to write me, I appreciate it, even if you are a troll. Uh, troll, by the way, is internet speak for asshole. Thank you for listening to Ranking